uh, Rabbi Kushner read a bo- wrote a book uh, as he wrestled through suffering uh, in very trying times amidst his own family and so forth. And he, he put this book out, uh, bestseller list. It was called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And here's where he landed, and you'll see this in your bulletin, as he, in a sense, sought to defend God. You'll see this quote. It says, Is there an answer to the question of why bad things happen to good people? The response would be, forgive the world for not being perfect, to forgive God for not making a better world. Reach out to people around us and go on living despite it all. That's where he landed in defending God. He got a bestseller out of it. But honestly... What he had to say, we could go back a few millennia before that to the Greeks, and they put it a lot more succinctly. If you see the slide there, here's what Epicurus had to say. He said this, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor nor willing? Then why call him God? Happy Thanksgiving. What's this Debbie Downer message here? I guess if I'm on crutches, you get to suffer too. No, but the point being, this is where David takes us in the passage this morning. In Psalm 62 He is going to hit this issue head on. Is God all good? Is he all powerful? Would you stand with me as we look now at Psalm 62? And notice a few things as we go through the 12 verses. The first being this. How many times David uses the word alone and only, emphasizing what we rest on. And then the Selah, where we pause and reflect briefly on what's been said, and then finally in verses 11 and 12, where he gets to the heart of the matter. For God alone, my soul, waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. 
that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. O Lord, may we worship now through the truths of your word. May we meditate rightly. May you speak through me. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So in your outline in the back of the bulletin, you have a, hopefully what's a simple, a simple big idea for the passage, and that is simply this. God calls us to wait on him alone amidst significant trials and not on false hopes because he is all-powerful, because he is all-good, and he will bless those who rest on him alone. So the first point, God calls us to wait on him only, alone, six times in the passage, that Hebrew word act, alone, only, hammering the point home, he is the only one we are to rest on. And David, in a sense, starts the psalm by speaking this truth to himself. And there are many times where we need to speak truth To ourselves. There are times where we need to tell ourselves what to believe, why to believe, how to believe, because we're having trouble feeling like we believe. It may be when we're in the depths of despair that the truth needs to be spoken to us, or it could be when we're just coasting. Things seem good enough, and we're just getting a little hard because we're coasting. And we need the truth to be spoken to us about God alone. And there there are times in the service you probably heard where we emphasize what are called the five solas. God alone, salvation by Christ alone, through grace alone, and so forth. And, And it's not just trite sayings that we use. As David is saying here, we wait on God alone. We are dependent on God alone. And this topic came up in in our Sunday school class last session. And one of the things we talked about is this. Many times you might be counseled or you might be counseling someone else. And what comes out of it is the person says, all they gave me were Bible verses. They just, in a sense, hit me over the head with the Bible. They didn't listen to me. They didn't care for me. They didn't hear my story. They just threw it out there. They had no comfort or compassion. So in a sense, as far as that goes, it's a great point. One who counsels and does it that way just gives Bible without any kind of context. That is, that's awful. But there's somewhat of a dichotomy portrayed there that you either give the Bible or you listen and have compassion. But last I looked, 2 Corinthians speaks of the God of compassion. He is the one who says, when we counsel someone else who is suffering, have compassion, care. James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak. So it's from the Bible that we're actually getting the idea that we should have compassion, that we should, have li- that we should listen, that we should hear before we speak into the issue, and therefore we would not be just hitting them over the head with scripture that has no context. 
The point being, it comes from God alone that we should be compassionate hearers, that we should listen before we speak, that we should speak truth into the situation. And if someone were to give counsel that is separate from what God would have us to hear, then you don't want that. I don't want that. David's saying it's God alone upon whom we ultimately rest. It's by no means saying don't use medicine, don't have a story, don't have empathy. No, but our primary hope amidst everything is from God alone. He is our rock, our salvation, our fortress, David says. We have no other crutch, (laughs) nice time for the prop, to rest on. It is God alone. So as an application, I invite you to just take a minute. Take a few seconds right there in the margin. For me, waiting on God alone means what? What does that mean for you right now to wait on God alone? Secondly, David says, we wait on God alone amidst significant trials. Derek Kidner says, we are seldom far or free from some shadow of an enemy. And David uses the word for assault. Only time in the Hebrew Bible, it's used here, emphasizing that he is under significant attack. And we see that in verse 4 where it says, they bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. If you're one where loyalty is high on the mark for you, it hits high on the Richter scale when some person that you've served, that you've counseled, that you've forgiven many times, then they turn on you. That hurts. And David was experiencing some of that type of assault. But yet we're to remember, Ephesians 6.12 says this, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the physical Our battle, ultimately, is against the spiritual, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. So not against the physical, but against the spiritual. And Adam, in a couple sermons, has given us five helpful words with regard to reconciliation. Here are five helpful words in marriage. We're on the same side. How often in marriage do we lose sight, we're believers, we're with the Lord, we're on the same side, but then the battle becomes against each other. Physical, you're the problem. No, you're the problem. Or as a child to a parent or a parent to a child. But to remember, we're on the same side, we're fighting ultimately a spiritual battle here. The devil is violently against us. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. It is ultimately a spiritual battle. So we're to wait on God alone amidst significant trials and not to rest in false hopes. In verses 8 through 10, David gives two false hopes. The first being social status. Could be I have this position 
I own this. I live here. I wear this. I look this way. That's what I rest in. Or it could be wealth or the lack thereof. It could be that we rest in some amount of riches. But often we see the rich can covet, and we see a problem there. Often the question to the rich man, how much is enough? One more dollar. The ongoing coveting and inability to truly rest in God. Or the poor can covet just the same. There's no blessing in and of itself in just being poor if our hearts aren't in the right place. I can remember a humorous story of the Amish. No knock on the Amish whatsoever. <laughs> can be quite good folks. But the point being where the Amish will uh, have not to do with uh, industry technology and go around in their buggies. But there could be coveting there too. This person said, one might covet the other's buggy that is shinier, or Betsy pulling my carriage might not be as good as old Joe pulling yours. So there can be coveting at any level. The point is there's not the blessing in being rich or being poor. It's where the heart is and what we ultimately rest on. Think of this. Whatever helps me to sleep peacefully is likely my hope. I'm in good health. I ate healthy. I did my workout today. I can rest peacefully. I just checked the stocks, my 401k on my phone. Ah, looks good. I can sleep well. That's my hope. I've got all my guns right beside my bed. I feel safe. All of those could be good in a sense, unless they're the ultimate hope. David says our ultimate hope is with God. It could even be to say, I've got the best wife, I've got the best husband beside me, I'm good. That spouse will one day pass away, or you will. So the hope, the thankfulness is in God, who gave you the second best spouse in the world, because I have the best, but we wait and we trust on God and say, thank you for who you have given me, lest we rest on false hopes. So we wait on God alone, significant trials, not false hopes, because he is all-powerful and all-good or loving, as we see in verses 11 and 12. So this is where David hits it head on, where we talked about Rabbi Kushner. And if you're not a believer, a skeptic, this is where you get your two best arguments. Pretty much the case. God's not really all-powerful. God's not really all-loving. He can't be both. So let's look at a few what we'll call proofs. Not hardcore proofs, we'll call them evidences, maybe would be more accurate. God is all-powerful. Evidence one, the immensity of the universe. Uh, Norm Geisler, Frank Turk, wrote a, what a uh, important book 
why I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. They point out this. There are 100 billion stars in the galaxy. They are each star 30 trillion miles apart. If you were in the space shuttle going 17,000 miles an hour, it would take you 200,000 miles, I'm sorry, 200,000 years to go from one star to the next. 100 billion stars in the galaxy. That's the galaxy. The universe, more stars than the grains of sand on all the beaches of the earth. This is a powerful God. The accuracy of the gravity, the gravitational constant, it has been said if it were off by a quadrillionth, things would collapse based on the accuracy that God has put together with gravity. John Glenn, the astronaut, in his travels, he looked out and he said, to look out at this kind of creation and not believe in God is impossible. That's why God affirms in Scripture, says, the heavens declare, they shout the glory of God. For the atheist to deny that God is all-powerful, as his Geisler and Turek say, you have more faith than me. But let's move now from the immensity that we see in the universe from the telescope to the microscope. DNA. When I was eight years old, living in New Orleans, growing up there, after school, I would go to the library. My mom worked at the University of New Orleans Library. I'd have a couple hours there uh, while she finished work. And I would grab one of those big encyclopedias. I imagine the young folks might not even have seen the, the old <laughs> encyclopedias. The volumes and volumes are so big because you just look everything up on the Internet now. But the case back there, I would get old Encyclopedia Britannica, and I would either look up snakes or sharks. And I would get some paper, and I would copy down word for word what it said in the encyclopedias. I guess there weren't copy machines back there. I don't know. But that's how I passed the time, writing those out. It's been said by atheist Richard Dawkins. He proposes that the cell nucleus of an, an amoeba, so take the super small amoeba, then go to its microscop microscopic cell nucleus, that the DNA information contained in that microscopic piece is enough to fill 1,000 complete sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica, enough to fill half of this auditorium. Just the DNA in that small cell nucleus. What about the statistical odds of life? Think about this. We hear often about amusing stories of, of athletes where what are the odds that this guy could ever, or this team could ever beat that team. It's just infinitesimal. The funny one I always think of is uh, LeVar Ball, father of Lonzo Ball of the Lakers, if you've ever read that. He, LeVar Ball averaged a whopping 1.9 points per game in college, and he proposed that he could beat who many considered to be the GOAT. Hunter said LeBron James was the greatest of all time in basketball, but... 
LeVar Ball said he could have beaten Michael Jordan in one-on-one. You say, okay, that's, that's infinitesimally small. That's so ridiculously small. But let's look at some actual concrete odds. If we look at the odds for you winning the lottery in Powerball, okay, that's said to be the odds of winning Powerball lottery, one in, go ahead, 292 million, okay? So, not very good odds, don't go for it, okay? But let's go further with odds. Michael Behe, Christian scientist, said that the odds of, fi- of, of creating life from non-living stuff, the odds there are one, in, one out of 512, and then all those zeros. I don't know what that is. But he said it's the same as a blindfolded man going to the Saharan desert and finding a marked particle of sand and doing it three times in a row. So it's not just this odds. It's more zeros. It's 18 slides of zeros. One out of all that stuff. Okay? So what's the punchline from that? The punchline is, no, it's not that your odds are better to play the lottery, and so go play the lottery. Nope, not going there. It takes too much faith to be an atheist, is what it so much boils down to, to believe that life could come from nothingness. And it's why the Lord of the universe says in Exodus, don't put any other gods before me, not above me, not even in my presence. Don't mix the infinite and the finite. How do we pretend there's not a God who rules? But even acknowledging these facts is not enough so often. Why? Because the atheist could still say no based on their will. How many times do we just say, I don't care, I will not submit. I will not give my life over. Darwinist Richard Lewontin says this as uh, his commitment to materialistic, naturalistic science. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. Because we have prior commitment to to materialism. Moreover, that materialism is absolute. For we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. I don't care about the facts. My will, I will not accept them. And I'm a scientist. Interesting. So I think for the Christian in here, many of us would acknowledge a lot of these. I would hope that some of them would help maybe to produce a little bit more awe of God and appreciation for his majesty. But let's be honest and get to the heart of hearts. God is all-powerful, but is he all-good? Is he all good to me? I counsel a guy now for a couple months, weekly, 
and it comes up just about every week. I can't believe that God is good to me. God is all good. But if he's all good, then why is there evil? Why is there pain? Doesn't God being all good in the presence of pain, suffering, evil, imply a contradiction? My, my own personal health issues and stuff <laughs> in the last couple weeks, a, uh, a busted heel, then a colonoscopy, they found polyps. So, man, remember back in college, my roommate, Matt, good old country boy, as I'm going out for the first, we got two a days for cross country. So I'm headed out the door at 6 for cross country practice. I'll have it good in the afternoon, and in the fall, we'll mix in baseball practice because that was crazy time in a math major. And Matt would roll over, look at me, seeing and going out the door, say, Daryl, you're going to end up broken down by the time you're 40. <laughs> roll over and go back to sleep. Prophetic words there, Matt. <laughs> you, you win. So, but let's consider this illustration. Greg Kukul gives this illustration. And so, is our strongest man in the congregation here? I don't have my glasses on, but I'm looking for Tim Brown. <laughs> Tim, the strongest man in the congregation. We need the children. Now, I'm not going to call Tim down here because he would dwarf me and make me feel all the more puny on my uh, crutches here. And he wasn't even a UT football player, but he's the strongest guy in here. Now, so children, if I gave this paper clip to super strong Tim Brown and asked him to make it in the shape of a circle. Would Tim be kind enough to answer your request and do it, and would he be strong enough for the children? Could, could Mr. Brown do that? Make this paperclip into a circle? Yes, yes. Then, could we put it a little harder to him? Could we say, Mr. Brown, could you make that paperclip now into a square? I really want you to. For the children, would he be kind enough to do that for you? Would he be strong enough to do that for you? Yes? <laughs> Mr. Brown, if you really love me, will you make it into a square circle? Would he do it? Could he do it? But Mr. Brown, you love me. You're so nice. At some point, maybe it's impossible the question of stopping evil, Greg Kalkel says, is, is like that issue with that paperclip. For God to stop evil means that he has to stop all evil, not just the murderer, not just the thief, not just the liar. Even the thinking of evil, right? That's all evil. So stop that. Because otherwise, if he only stops some of the evil, then why this evil? Why not that evil? He must stop all of it. But if he does, what does that remove? The ability for us, made in the image of God, to freely choose. So is it not an impossibility? 
Another thought, isn't the presence of evil in and of itself a proof of the goodness of God? How can we say that something is evil if there is not good and all good and an all good giver of goodness? How can we even say that something's evil otherwise? Otherwise, it's just a bunch of deterministic reactions of slime And it's just preference to say something's bad when there isn't any absolute good anyway. Final illustration, Joni Erickson Tata says this. Picture a child who is in need of aid. They need stitches. There is the doctor, the good and strong doctor, who holds down the child in order to apply the stitches. The child, young, this is, they're scared. They're fearful. What is going on? They likely don't think that that doctor is necessarily good, necessarily strong on their behalf. But the child's perspective of that doctor in no way lowers the character of the doctor of the doctor's goodness, of the doctor's powerfulness as the doctor helps the child. So David says then finally this. We wait on God alone amidst hard trials, not false hopes, because God is all good and all powerful and he will reward those who wait upon him Alone. See verse 12. For you will render to a man according to his work. So we are right to say, and sometimes the word reward gets a bad name in Christian circles that we don't want to use it. We can do nothing to get into heaven. It is by grace alone, in Christ alone. But there is something in this passage that speaks of rewards. What is going on? For the obedient child of the Father, there are both eternal rewards and temporal rewards now for the believer. Don't take that from me. Take it from Scripture. As far as heaven goes, Scripture speaks of crowns. That there are crowns for the believer in heaven. Many would say that those crowns likely represent uh, the rule of his people in heaven. I'd say it's safe to say that Billy Graham will rule over much more land than I will. But with the crowns, there's no, there's no sense of pride. Hey, I'm ruling over more than you. I got Texas. You got Indian Trail. None of that. They says they all put the crowns at the feet of the throne. There's humility. Say, ultimately, God, it comes from you. But there are also rewards for the here and now on the earth. The child who is patient and receives the stitching without thrashing around, they won't be scarred in the same way as the one who kicks and screams. The one who bows and acknowledges the lordship and goodship or goodness of the Father is blessed 
with deep fellowship. The Bible says so. In the screw tape letters, wormwood, screw tape, they, the, 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 one of the keys is for the believer, let's get him to focus on the ordinary. Get him to lose his awe of God. Lose the awe of God's power, of God's love and goodness. So tonight, simply go home, be like a child, look up at the immensity of the universe. Realize God is powerful. I grew up in New Orleans, Teve did too. Highest point in New Orleans, Monkey Hill, 20 feet high. <laughs> Could have settled for the ordinary, but then there's the Appalachians, the Rockies, the Sierras, to taste more of what's out there. Or did you want to just smell the pumpkin pie scented candle? It's kind of nice. Or did you want to eat the pumpkin pie? We're called this morning. Scratch the surface. Somehow scratch something in you. Let's long for more of God, his power, and his goodness. And David says to trust. The word there, bata, trust, is to attach to something. We are called this morning to be awakened, to not settle, to trust and attach ourselves more and more into the goodness and the power of God, to hunger for something more. When we, rest up, when we rest upon God alone amidst trials, avoiding the false hopes, because he's all good, because he's all powerful, there is a reward. Don't settle. The Lord of the Rings, Sam, says to Frodo, in light of this, in light of this, Sam, well, I, I don't want to experience the pain of pushing forward, of longing for more, because I might not get it. Sam challenges Frodo. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. You were afraid to long for it. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Don't settle. Let us pray.